We're back in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8, and uh, this is uh, the third part of this particular chapter, uh, and uh, we won't even finish it all of it today. In fact, uh, you'll see on your handouts, the very last section, I'm going to push off until next Sunday. As I was studying further, um, I decided that uh, there was just too much uh, to try to cover in our time period uh, on that. So we look forward to some exciting things. But I wanted to uh, kind of share an illustration. Uh, Michael celebrated his 10th birthday uh, just a few weeks ago, and our neighbor gave him this T-shirt. It says, Level 10. Michael is uh, kind of on a, on a little game uh, controller here, and it says, Unlocked. You know, so Level 10 Unlocked. Of course, that was a play on words because he, he turned 10. But any of you who are familiar with uh, video games know that uh, when you're playing video games, as you master the, the first levels, then it unlocks other levels. And that's why it can be addictive almost uh, to, to some, is they want to get to that next level. And uh, I've, I've heard, you know, guys get together, sometimes even grown men, you know, they're talking about, well, how did you unlock that level? Well, I did this. And, and then they, they look up online of, you know, different tricks of how to get to the next level. But they, they understand, I have to master this level to get to the next. Similar illustration as those of you who are in college. You know that to take some of your upper-level classes, you have prerequisites. So Dylan and Owen, for example, they can't just jump in and go, oh, I want to take the upper-level engineering classes right away. I mean, that's just what I'm interested in. I don't really care about English 101 and the history and the, you know, the stuff like that. I, I just want to jump right into, well, no, it doesn't work that way. You've got to do the prerequisites uh, for what uh, your classes require. As we've looked at some elements of spiritual revival in review, there are a few things that are kind of like those first levels. And if you don't get those, if you don't pass through those first and understand the importance of those first elements, you're not going to experience the, the, the full spiritual revival. And that is what we've talked about in the previous weeks, that one, is, there's a reverence for God's Word. If you're lacking a reverence and respect for God's word, then you're not going to truly experience spiritual revival. If you don't understand that you are a sinner, now God, thank God that after he saves us, we are redeemed sinners, yet we still fight with the flesh, right? So in, unless we have a reverence for God's word, and then as we're looking into his word, which James calls the perfect law of liberty, it serves as kind of a mirror and so as we're looking into his word, spending time reading his word, and then through the Bible, through God's word, he reveals himself to us, but he also reveals to us how different we are than him. And as we see that and we're aware of that, then we repent of that, then that should lead us to continue and to increase our commitment to God. Those are the first three levels. If you don't get those levels down, then you, the rest that we're going to go through you're not going to fully experience. In fact, the next thing we'll see is a commitment to serve others. And you may think, well, man, that's, that's kind of my cup of tea. That's where I really enjoy. I just enjoy serving others. But get it, you will not serve others in a Christ-like way unless all these three first levels come ahead. No, 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 but I love other people. Well, but if you're not loving God first with all your heart, soul, and mind then the love that you're expressing to other people will be tainted by your selfish motives and attitudes. But if you put God first, which in Matthew, you may be reminded that Christ answered to the Pharisees and says, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second 
is like it that you you should love your neighbor as yourself. But notice, he says, the second is like it. So the first thing, reverence for God's word, then awareness, repentance of sin, and then a commitment to God, and then we come to where we start today, a commitment to serve others. Look with me in Nehemiah chapter 7. We're mainly going to be in Nehemiah 8, but look with me in the first couple of verses of Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. We've already seen the walls around Jerusalem, you know, have been rebuilt, have been completed. The temple has been uh, finished, you know, years earlier. But notice in Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the notice, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And a couple of brief things I want to point out in that passage is a lot had already been done, and there, there was a lot to celebrate, but Nehemiah understood there's still more to happen, and I want to organize the people to do different functions in service of others. Gatekeepers, Levites, Singers, the singers weren't just singing for their own health, but to be a blessing to other people. And then even his own brother, he says, because he's a more faithful and God-fearing man than many, I want to appoint him as governor of the city in charge over Jerusalem. So there's a commitment to serve others. Now, a few few things within that, spiritual growth, leave something in Nehemiah chapter 8, if you would, and turn with me to Ephesians 4. And start in verse 20. Ephesians 4, 20 through 32. And I want, to, I, want, I want to point out in this passage the sequence in this relationship between God first and then others next. We see this played out through Ephesians 4, 20 through 32. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So we've mentioned many times at One Hope, that's kind of the first step. You know, as you're, as you're being aware of, of God's uh, you know, holiness, putting off your old self. Then the second step, and to be, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That comes as we're in God's presence, as we're in his word, as we're around other believers. Then third step, and to put on the new self, but notice, created after likeness of who? Yeah, all right, I heard, I think, a couple people, created after likeness of who? Of God. So created after likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So that's kind of like a foundational piece there. But then notice as we go on, verse 25, therefore having put away falsehood, let each of one of you speak the truth with who? Huh. All right, so God first is we're trying to, to, to we're renewing our minds with his word. We're putting on the new self like after God. And then the very next verse begins to say, okay, so as that happens, as you're putting God first and loving him with all your heart, soul, and mind, these are some things that are going to happen next as you look and fulfill the second greatest commandment that you'll put away falsehood and lying and you're going to speak truth with your neighbor, with the one who's near you. For we are members one of another. And then verse 26, be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something 
Notice, to share with anyone in need. Again, we're building off the foundation of God first, but then we can't help but be a blessing to others if God is first in our life. It's the sequence. Spiritual growth happens that way. Then verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may, again, give grace to those who hear. Commitment to serve others. Verse 30 brings us back to that foundational piece of God first, and it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to who? One another. Some of us, and even uh, James talks about the, di- the, the, the weird contrast and how some people can say, boy, I, I, I love God, but I hate my brother. In God's economy, that shouldn't happen. As we love God, then we're going to love our spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. So we see, it says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted." forgiving one another, and then back to the foundational piece, as God and Christ forgave you. You can't separate the two. And if we aren't loving God first with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and growing in our own relationship with Him, then this step of commitment to serve others will not happen according to His plan. So see, spiritual growth happens in that sequence. But think about also the spiritual gifts. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12 and verses 4 through 7. Each one of us who is a follower of Jesus Christ has been given at least one spiritual gift. That's not something we bargain for. It's not something we have to earn. It's something that God gives us as part of our inheritance of being his children. So in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 4, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit... There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God. Now notice, so who, who unifies us? Is it, you know, that, uh, well, we, we all kind of grew up the same, and so that's why we're unified in Christ. No. Is it because, well, you know, we all, we all speak, you know, the same kind of, kind of language? Well, no, that's not even really what unifies us. Okay, I got it, Pastor. We all come to One Hope Church. Well, I mean, that, that's helpful. But in really what unifies us as believers is the same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God. And that's why it doesn't matter if I'm at Northwest Classical Academy on a Sunday morning gathering together with my church family, or maybe as far out as Brazil or China or Russia or wherever, and come across a fellow believer and I can say, hey, we're part of the same family. Because we're united through Jesus Christ. Same Spirit, same Lord, same God. And then it says, in the continuing of verse 6, who empowers them all in everyone. So no, you know, not much a relationship with God, the Spirit, God the Son, uh, and God the Father. Well, then you're not going to have much power. If you don't have any relationship, you won't have any power. You know, that's a given. But if your relationship with Him is weak, then the power to serve in, in others is going to be weak too. It says, who empowers them all and everyone, and then notice verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
It's not to build me up. It's not so I can say, hey, look at the gift God gave me. (laughs) Don't you wish you had my gift? Or I might be angry and say, God, I wish you'd give me their gift. Boy, I'd like to serve you in that way, not the way that, no, it says God gave you your gift for the common good. So that is his perfect spiritual gift for you. First Peter, Peter kind of puts it another way, and he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So he makes it very clear, these spiritual gifts aren't to elevate kind of our pride and our sense of self-worth, but it's given so that I may be a blessing to the body of Christ. So each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards, managers, administrators of God's varied grace. So a couple questions. How are you using the spiritual gift that God has given to you. Are you using it to help others? Oh, boy, I'm just busy. You know, I've got all this stuff going on. Well, God said he gave you a spiritual gift for the common good to serve one another. How about the abilities, the, the talents? That's even in addition to the spiritual gift because many of us have either developed by God's grace and his help, even common grace, those of us who maybe came to Christ later in life, but even by his common grace, meaning that even before we are followers of Christ, you may have developed abilities and talents that now you can use in an even fuller sense to bless others in the name of Jesus Christ. How are you using that? How are you thinking, okay, well, I, I'm really into to IT stuff. Fantastic. How do you use that for God's glory? I love music. Great. Well, how do you use that for God's glory? Well, you know, see, I'm an athlete. Okay, fantastic. How do you use that for God's glory? All of those areas and so many more you can use to be a blessing to others. How are you using your talents and abilities? So this is through spiritual growth as we look at our spiritual gifts then also under the commitment to serve others, part of that is in giving and sharing the resources that we have. So let's go all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10. I think there's a beautiful picture in this passage of God's design that it's not, it shouldn't be just us four no more. You know, that oh, well, we, we've got this sweet thing going and, and I don't really anybody to, to break this up. And um, I hear my older... Uh, daughters sometimes talk about, you know, friend groups at college. Well, you know, our friend group did this and, and, and in, our, in our friend group chat. And sometimes I've challenged them like, well, I mean, does that ever expand? I mean, did ever like any new friends kind of enter that group? Well, yeah, yeah, dad. I mean, yeah. But sometimes as believers, we can kind of feel like, no, it's, you know, this is, this is sweet. This is special. And if anybody comes and, and enters this group, well, it's going to mess the dynamic up. Even in Nehemiah chapter 8, we see a beautiful picture of looking out for others. Notice chapter 8 and verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine. Let me just pause there and say, God was saying, get the good stuff, okay? Go, Go get the good stuff because this is time to celebrate. But it didn't just stop there. It says, eat the fat, drink sweet wine. And then it says, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Now some of you who have grown up in church, you might recognize here kind of this is maybe the first potluck. (laughs) 
Maybe this is the first like church-wide, you know, it's, it's not the first, but really the Old Testament principle is you better look out for others around you who don't have as much and share because this is a time of celebration. This principle even goes back further to Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 11. It says this, And you should rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter. But it doesn't just stop there. The principle in Deuteronomy 16 11 is not just, okay, you take your family and you celebrate what God's done. No, it says you do it with your son, your daughter, and then your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your towns. The Levites, remember, were those who had been set aside uh, for the, the, the duties of the tabernacle and later the temple to serve others. And so God's saying, remember them too. Remember the Levite who are in your towns. And then the sojourner, the traveler, the one who doesn't have roots, the one who may not be you know, as set up as you are, remember him or them, the sojourner, the fatherless. Remember those who don't have a father, maybe don't have a mother. Remember the widow who are among you. At the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. So as we are committed to serve others, we're going to be ready to give to others. We learned some important lessons when we first went to Brazil that is, is really a, a beautiful part of their culture, but it was very different than how we grew up, and I'll explain this way. I'm just going to ask you, in fact, okay? So if you are told tomorrow, you know, Labor Day, this is Labor Day weekend, so tomorrow we're going to have a, a church activity, but we're going to do a little bit different. Instead of, you know, organizing and having potluck and stuff, everyone packs their own lunch, okay? So you bring a sack lunch. If you want to run by Chick-fil-A, you get your lunch. You, you bring a lunch to the picnic. We're going to go to Red Top, State, uh, Red Top Mountain State Park, and at 12 noon, we're all going to gather together, and we're going to have our, our stuff that we've prepared for, for us, you know, for ourselves, and we're going to have lunch together. Like, okay, yeah, that's what's so weird about that. So Kim and our family, you know, we'd probably do sandwiches and some chips and maybe throw in some cookies and maybe, maybe some fruit for feeling kind of healthy, and we, we put that in there. And then we show up at 12 noon, and y'all are there like, oh, well, what did you bring for lunch? Oh, well, I, you know, I didn't have time. ran by Chick-fil-A. And oh, what would you get? Well, I got Subway. And well, I have peanut butter and jelly. And we, eat, we each kind of sit down there, and we open our little lunch, and, and we, we get it out, and, and we eat our lunch. Like, yeah, right. Well, that's not how picnics work in Brazil. The first picnics that we sent our kids on, so we prepared their little lunch and we sent them on their way. And then they came back and says, Dad, Mom, this does not work how you planned it. When we showed up, everybody wanted a part of our lunch too. And then everything that they had, instead of bringing like a little, a little bag or a little, you know, they brought like, you know, big Tupperware containers of like 20 sandwiches. And so when we sat down to lunch, they just opened their Tupperware and like, hey, do you want one? Do you want one? Do you want one? And all we had was one peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But everybody kind of wanted some, well, you know, what do you have, Christina and Jessica? And so we quickly learn, and when you do a picnic in Brazil, you plan to share everything. And if you don't want to share it, don't take it. And I learned that. Like, okay, yeah, this, I don't have very many of these. Okay, we're just going to leave those in the pantry. 
But it's a beautiful part of their culture is as you get together, that's just a given. You have come to share with those around you. And anybody that shows up, and often people would show up at the last minute, friends would be invited, and I would be getting texts even after the event started, Pastor, do you mind if I bring 10 more? (sighs) Yeah, sure. We'll just cut the sandwiches in half again. And and it always seemed, God did so many miracles of, you know, replenishing the Tupperware containers. And the food lasted because people were giving to others. That was a huge lesson for us. That's really as we focus on all that God's done for us, we're going to be more ready to share and to give and to really bless others with our resources. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Last week we celebrated the Lord's Supper in the Corinthian church, was it, was it like a model church? Did the Corinthian church, you know, hold, um, discover the Corinth church conferences annually? Did they have books, you know, the Corinth model, the Corinth explosion? Well, maybe explosion as far as like dissension, perhaps, but it was not a model church. So we celebrated the Lord's Supper last Sunday. In fact, I even read a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians. But there were some problems with the Lord's Supper celebrations in the Corinthian church. And it goes back to the focus that many of them had as selfish. And let's, let's get what you know, we brought to the meal. Notice with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So a clear reference to the Lord's Supper. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. The one bread is Jesus Christ. And as we even saw in the spiritual gifts, the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God, that is who unifies us, and that is why we are brothers and sisters in Christ in the same family. Now, this little local church family meets here. There's other local church families that are meeting all over metro Atlanta and Georgia, all over the nation, and even all over the world, but we're united through Jesus Christ. Notice what was happening, though. Jump ahead in one chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, Paul says, I do not commend you. And basically he's just starting out saying, listen, I've got a bone to pick with you. And I'm not real happy about how some things are going on. He says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Boy, how sad that in so many churches, that is the truth. I remember a time in my life where there, were, where there were two men who wouldn't sit on the same side of the church because they were so mad at each other. That ought not to be. And I believe it in part, Paul says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Then notice verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. 
Now, there's, there's a few details that may be missing, but I think we can kind of piece maybe how the story was going. And it appears that maybe those who had a little bit more resources, a little bit more wealth, were bringing the better food and the more food. And as they would meet together, it wasn't just the Lord's Supper as we celebrate it, you know, a little cup and a little, a little uh, uh, thing of bread. But it seemed to be more of a meal and Paul's saying, you know, some of you, as you meet together, you're just going ahead with your own meal. You're not thinking about other people around you. You're, you're indulging in whatever you brought. He goes, he goes on, it says, one goes hungry, but then another gets drunk. And I may remind you that back in Bible times, the, the wine and the, the, uh, the fermented beverages were certainly not as strong as they are today. So you had to drink more to get drunk. We saw a lot of drunk people yesterday, before, during, and after the Georgia game. And uh, there's certainly an effect that happens. But there had to be a lot of drinking to go on for these people to be drunk. And Paul's saying, listen, shame on you. That you're bringing the good food and you're bringing all this stuff, but some go hungry and then others get drunk because you're not even caring about the people that are around you. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So the same principles that we see in Deuteronomy, it's repeated in Nehemiah, and then all throughout the New Testament is, as we focus on all that God has given us, we're going to be more ready to share our resources, whatever those may be, with those around us, especially believers in Christ. We should be committed to be giving to others. Spiritual revival, this is on your nose, spiritual revival won't happen if we're all just looking out for number one ourselves. If you're just looking out for yourself, don't expect to have spiritual revival because part of that is being committed to serve others and that includes giving. In our consumer-driven society, we need to remind ourselves that it, that it is not money that unites us, but it is our master. The church family is not exempt from prejudices happening, whether it be on race, whether it be on languages, whether it be on material possessions, the church family is not exempt, unfortunately. Why? Because we're still sinners. But we need to remind ourselves, it's not the amount of money that we have that unites us or that can make us be friends with one another. It's not the type of cars we drive or if we drive a car. It's not the type of house that we have. But it's our master that unites us. So that within a church family, there can be some differences in financial possessions, but there not, should not be any difference in unity and fellowship and love for one another. And within that body, all of us should look for ways, okay, how has God blessed me and how can I be a blessing to others? You may say, Pastor David, I, don't, I really haven't been blessed yet with a lot of material possessions. That's okay. What abilities do you have? Are you investing time in blessing others? Maybe even some who have more material possessions than you do, but God has given you an ability and talent that you can fill a gap in this wealthier brother and sister in Christ who doesn't have that talent, and you step up and say, hey, I can help with that. And then those, those who maybe God's blessed beyond your needs, as you're aware and you pray and say, Lord, how would you have me to be a blessing? Part of that is often sharing some of the surplus that you have. 
Now, I, wanna, I, wanna, I do want to warn you, don't fall into the trap, those who have more than, you need, more than you need, don't fall into the trap to think that my way of being a blessing is always going to be financial, because that's not true. Finances are part of it. But we should also be willing and looking to God any way you want me to serve. But I'm reminded of a, an older couple from the church, you know, that is we call our sending church, meaning it's a, a partnering church and helping us plant churches and things in Macon, Georgia. And this older couple, very wealthy. But for years, this man has served in Awanas on Wednesday night leading games. And his wife sings in the choir. It's not because they get more money out of that. He's not, you know, flashing out dollar bills on Wednesday night Awanas. But he sits down across the table from some kids, sometimes unruly, and he helps them learn their verses, and he encourages them, and he asks them how their week goes. And she goes, and she practices and, and re- rehearses a song so that she can stand up with the rest of the choir on Sunday and bless those who are in attendance. Yes, they've helped others with their money, but they've also looked for other ways to serve and be a blessing. We literally, throughout the 18 years that we were in Brazil, we had hundreds of people come and visit us and partner, us, partner with us in many different ways. Among those hundred people, we had uh, many wealthy people come. And I was always challenged to see some of those wealthy people do some very menial, what sometimes we think of as menial task, digging a ditch for foundation for a church, putting varnish on some wood pews or a pulpit for a new church plant, mixing cement so we could construct a new building so that the gospel of Jesus Christ could influence the area around us. Mopping a floor, perhaps. And folks, whatever God's given us, whether it comes in the form of green paper, or maybe a digital amount in your bank account, or a talent that you have, or an ability, and certainly your spiritual gift, be aware, God, how can I bless others? That is a part of spiritual revival. We see next that we must have a dependence on God for strength. Nehemiah chapter 8 again, verse 10, but the latter part of verse 10 says, And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. One commentator made the connection between Nehemiah 8.10 and then Luke 15. In Luke 15, we won't necessarily read through the whole passage, but there are three parables that Jesus Christ brings to light, and they're all about lost things. The first parable begins with the parable of the lost sheep. And as the shepherd finds that lost sheep, it says that he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, Christ says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. God is, through Nehemiah and through the leaders there in Ezra, says, listen, don't be grieved over your past sins. Repentance has happened, but now let the joy of the Lord be your strength. The relationship has been restored, and God is excited about when we restore that relationship back with him through repentance and awareness of sin and then accepting his forgiveness. The lost sheep was found, and rejoicing happened. The second parable is the parable of a lost coin. When the woman finds that lost coin, 
She calls together in Luke 15, verse 9, it says she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, Christ says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I'll probably never forget, I've told this illustration before, but I can't help but tell it again. The night that Wilson called me after a service and said, Pastor, there's a party in heaven tonight. I said, what? He said, yeah, there's a party in heaven tonight because my mother-in-law just accepted Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. And didn't you teach that it says the angels rejoice? I said, exactly right. I said, Wilson, there's a party in heaven tonight. Praise God for that. And now he's in heaven partying with them. Amen? So the lost coin and the, the woman rejoiced. The third parable is probably the most common. It's the parable, parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son demanded his inheritance. It went something like this. Dad, hey, I want my inheritance now. Son, don't you want to wait? Now, all these details aren't in the scripture, but I'm imagining a wise father would probably say, Son, don't you, don't you want to wait? No, no, no. Dad, I want it now. So dad gave him the inheritance prematurely. As you may remember the story, he went, he wasted it all. And then finally, he manifested true repentance. So much so that he said, I'm not even worthy to be called a servant, but I'm going to go back. And as he went back, we read in Luke 15, 23 through 24, it says, let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And before that verse even happened, he'd given his son a new robe. He gave him a special ring. He told his servants, hey, let's have a big barbecue. It's a good southern thing, right? Let's have a big barbecue. Why? Because my son was lost. He's now found. It's time to celebrate. God, who had been certainly very disappointed in the people of Israel through their, their cycle of rebellion, repentance, restoration, and then they would do it again as the people were coming before him, grieving for their sin. Now he says, listen, don't grieve anymore. Today is the, is the day of the Lord. Rejoice. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. You've been restored to me. May we learn from that, that as we repent of our sins, that God rejoices with, with that. We can realize that because he's on our side, because he intercedes for us, because he is faithful to us, that is our strength. That's what should give us the joy. You know, around our house, there's a few phrases that we, we use sometimes in a joking way because some of our friends have used these phrases in the past and, and they're a little bit exaggerative. But uh, one of them goes all the way back to my nephew when he was younger. He would often say, you know, if he was doing something fun, he would often say, man, this is the best day of my life. I remember one time we were on a playground and he was swinging and Bailey, he just got excited. He said, man, Uncle David, this is the best day of my life. And he would say that. I mean, he had a lot of best days. I mean, he just, that was kind of what he said. So sometimes we'll kid around, yeah, this is the best day of my life. Another guy, a friend of ours that we visited in India, he, all throughout the trip, he, he'd say stuff like, this will change your life. This will change your life. I mean, there's a lot of life-changing things, I guess, but he said, this will change your life. And then another one, he says, oh, you, you've got to try this, Dave. You've got to try the top five. This is in the top five. He said top five about 20 times. So he, he's got a lot of top five, maybe categories. He's got the top five. In this category, top five, top five. But you know what? The psalmist talks about some things in Psalm 63 that literally will change your life. Literally can help you to say, this is the best day 
of my life. Look with me in Psalm 63, verses 3 and 4. Psalm 63 and verse 3 and 4. It says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. That definitely will change your life. When we grasp and when we understand that God's steadfast love is better than the expectations that we have in life that sometimes don't happen, this is hard for me to live out be honest. I know it mentally. I've read it. I've even memorized the passage. But in low days, in the discouraging days, sometimes it's, think, sometimes it's easy to think, no, you know, God, I, I appreciate your love, but I would love for you to kind of show your love in this way and in that way. And until you do, I'm not going to be fully happy. That's oftentimes how my flesh thinks. But if we can come back and grasp, boy, your steadfast love and nothing else is better than life. It'll change our life. Psalm 37 verse 39 says, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. He's the one that we can cling on to. He's the concreted foundation that keeps the basketball goal from coming down. Or He's the one who keeps that fence post firm because there's a solid stronghold, the solid rock. You'll see in your notes that it's not our past failures that undermine our future as Satan, our accuser, wants us to believe. Sometimes we'll be reminded of, boy, you failed here, and then you failed again here, and you failed here, so don't don't think that God's going to use you much in the future. That's just Satan, the accuser. And we sang this morning, we can find our rest in Christ, and He is our defender. But it's it's not only that that sometimes we struggle with living in our past failures, but even sometimes our past successes, our prideful flesh wants to think, well, this is going to guarantee my future. Because in the past, well, I did this and this happened. And, and then, you know, certainly I was instrumental in, in, in doing this. So my future should look like this. And God reminds us, no, God alone is our stronghold. God alone can guarantee the strength ahead. Philippians 2.13, Paul says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. And I want to close this morning by looking at the last element, at least the last element for this study. Certainly, this has not been an exhaustive study on spiritual revival, but another element that will be present is joy in serving Christ. Joy in serving Christ. I guarantee you there were hundreds, maybe even thousands of people that went home from the football game yesterday afternoon and had huge headaches, vomited, maybe forgot even where they'd been, what even happened. But yet we can know, listen, it doesn't matter the end of a football game, it doesn't matter the food that we eat, the drink that we have, but we as spiritual, as, as believers, we can have spiritual revival and experience true joy and lasting joy in serving Christ. Those who are in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. 
And the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions, giving to others, and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. In this passage, we see elements of thankfulness and praise and worship. And believers, brothers and sisters of Christ, may we rejoice in him. This isn't always in, in screaming or clapping, but it can be. This should be things that we rejoice and talk about throughout the week. This should be things that, that become common around the lunch table. They should become common you know, as we're on breaks at work or out at recess, kids at school, or maybe at a, on a ball field after the game, athletes. Yesterday, once again, during the game, I was, the four of us were here, and Kim was next to me, so I was kind of at the end of our group. And this guy came in and sat next to me, and I, I, I still don't know his name. But after, I think, the first touchdown, we all jumped up and were screaming. And he kind of turned at me, and he put his hand up. And I'm like, well, I guess he wants to slap my hand. So I put my hand up, and we, we slapped hands. And after every other touchdown, you know what we did? I knew he was going to come slapping. So I thought, well, I better put my hand up. And we slapped hands to rejoice about a little leather ball going, crossing a line on the field in front of us. And it was fun, yes. But how much more exciting for the joy of the Lord. For forgiveness of sins for restoration of relationships, for husbands and wives whose, whose marriages was about to be destroyed, but then restored because of Jesus Christ. Parents and children who, you know, relationships probably in shambles, but through the principles of Scripture, restored once again. A past that haunts you if you allow the accuser to continue to bring up, you did this, and you did this, and you did this. You're worthless. Well, we sing here at church from time to time, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. What could love, what love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. And our sins there are many. His mercy is more. So much more. Praise the Lord. So yes, repenting of our sin, and this is in your notes, repenting of our sin is an extremely important part of spiritual revival, but it should lead us to rejoicing in God's forgiveness. Spurgeon said it this way, Grief for sin is the porch of the house where the guests are full of joy of the Lord. So yes, it's necessary to grieve for our sin and to repent and to be aware and to agree with what God says about our sin and to recognize the seriousness of our sin. But once that has been forgiven, that's a porch and the house should be full of people who are rejoicing in the Lord because it says in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray?